Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Some of you kids may know this chapter. I don't know if your parents regularly uh, quote it to you or not, but this is, a, this is a chapter that talks about discipline, and it talks about fathers disciplining their kids. It also, though, more particularly is talking about the discipline of us by God, our Heavenly Father. And so, uh, discipline, of course, what this passage says, we'll see, is discipline isn't pleasant. And for us, even even talk of discipline has become unpleasant. Uh, But this passage, when you read read these, we're just going to read the first 14 verses, um, they are such a joyful, joyful statement to us of, yes, our sin and our need of discipline, but also of God's love and of his mercy to us and his calling us to live holy lives, to be sanctified. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 14. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons, my son, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, 
Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Five hundred years ago, Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation by nailing the 95, his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And at that time, the battle that the church was in, the fight that believers were facing was a fight over justification. Now, justification is a big theological word, and I want you all to learn it, so I'm going to, I'm going to use the big theological words because these are, these are important words for us to learn and to know and to understand. Justification is when we are declared righteous by God. Justification is when we're declared righteous by God. And the question is, how can we ever be justified? And at the time of the Reformation, the answer that was being proclaimed by most of the church was you can be justified essentially by doing certain things, by doing good works. Uh, some of those works were. Um, were things that you would do, and sometimes, and especially at the time when Luther decided he was going to write his 95 Theses, it was actually things that you could buy. Like, you could, you could buy your justification by buying an indulgence. And an indulgence was a guarantee on the part of the church that you were forgiven for your sins. And you could actually buy guarantees from, other, from the church for other people, too people who were alive and people who were dead. And so this was what the church, the Roman Catholic Church, had been teaching at the time, was that justification was something that was, uh, that was connected to our, our actions in, in one way or another. Okay, And so what Luther began to do was as he studied the Word of God, he saw that this was not what the Bible taught, but rather, the Bible taught that we were justified, we were made righteous, made holy by God, simply when we put our faith in Him. If you believed in Jesus Christ, put your trust in Him for salvation, that was, that was it. You were justified. And that was, a, that was a real paradigm shift for Martin Luther and then for those who began to study the word with him and saw that he was right, that this is what the Bible says, that we can never be justified by our works. Nothing that we can do as sinful beings can ever make us justified in God's eyes. Well, now you... Fast forward about 500 years, and, and next week we'll really, 
we'll really be celebrating the 500th anniversary. Uh, so we're, we're real close. We, I guess with 500 years, you can spread out the celebration really as long as you want, right? <clears throat> but you, you fast forward 500 years, and this battle about justification, this, this fight within the church, the argument, and the temptation constantly, over and over and over again, this, this temptation to place our hope our, for justification in something else besides the God's free grace to us, okay, it has reared its head over and over and over and over, and it still does today. In fact, here in Cincinnati, justification is one of the things that we need to focus on a lot because this is a Roman Catholic town. And the idea that somehow if you just live a good enough life that you'll be able to, or if you just do the right things, even if you don't live a good enough life, that there will be some way for you to make yourself right in God's eyes. This is the basic thing that the Roman Catholic Church still teaches today. And so even though people are leaving the Roman Catholic Church, they're leaving still with that sort of idea. And so, justification matters, and we have to make sure we understand it. And so there there are organizations and people that really focus on teaching and defending and making sure that we understand and don't lose track of today or forget the true doctrine of justification. But justification is not the only doctrine, the only teaching in Scripture. And this passage that we read this morning is largely about sanctification. Why are we disciplined? So that we will live a holy life, right? Why do your parents discipline you? So that you'll do what you're told. That's the definition of living a holy life as a child is, you you, you know, you do what your parents say, right? It all boils down to just just about right there, right? And so, uh, and so, sanctification is another big theological word that's different from justification, right? Sanctification is how we are living more and more holy lives by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, Okay? But sanctification is not justification. And sanctification is, I would say, if not bigger, almost at least as big a problem today in the church as justification in terms of people being confused and, uh, and, and wanting to believe something wrong about sanctification, okay? Our salvation, if we are saved, if we are going to heaven, we will not simply have justification, but we will also have sanctification because God brings his work that he has begun in us to completion, right? 
And so recently, there has been a, a bit of a, an uproar in theological circles. Every once in a while, I'll tell you guys stories that maybe you're following online and maybe you're not, and it, and it doesn't matter, but it's, it's worth knowing uh, occasionally about some of these things. Recently, a pastor named John Piper, who I'm assuming most of you are familiar with, in, in leading up to the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, began to talk about the necessity of sanctification. And everybody's brains exploded. Because the, the Reformation was about justification, John. It was about justification. And, and here John Piper is, and he's going, yeah, but guys... This was never to the exclusion of sanctification, right? They're not in opposition to each other. They go together perfectly. Justification and sanctification are are both biblical doctrines that God has taught us in his word. And if we leave, if, if we somehow keep hold of justification but lose sanctification... We're in just as bad a spot as when we had sanctification but had lost justification. So today, we're going to look at sanctification. And then next week, maybe, when we're, uh, when we're truly celebrating the Reformation, maybe I'll look at justification again. I, I look at justification and sanctification pretty regularly, and the reason is because they're all over the place in the Bible. They're, you can't open it up without running into both of them. It's just constant. And so yesterday at the jail service where I was preaching, I, I preached on justification. And I was thinking about preaching on justification today, and then I thought, no, 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 we're going to Hebrews, we're going to sanctification first. So, there's your, uh, there's your little history lesson and your uh, explanation for, for where we're going. Um, I don't want you to be confused about these doctrines. They're so important. And uh, if you're reading uh, this, any of the articles that are talking about the Reformation, they'll probably talk mostly about justification, and that makes sense because that's what was really rediscovered by the church at that time. Um, but being a Christian, just like in the church, there's a, there's a timeline of what's going on. Just like, just like that, with our Christian life, there is a timeline. Okay? And it starts and ends with God being at work. The whole timeline is... God being at work. And first, God predestined some for salvation from prior to the creation of the world. And from that time, he has been working, bringing his plan to completion. From that time before the world began, he has been bringing his plan to completion. And he has promised that he will bring it all the way to completion. But it is not complete yet. And in those of us who are still alive, 
which is everybody in this room, thankfully. The process of being saved is still ongoing. Now, you can talk in the past tense, and you can talk in the present tense, and you can talk in the future tense about being saved. Okay, And the Bible does all three of those things. And so I can ask you, are you saved? And if I ask you, are you saved? That's past tense, right? (laughs) Has this happened to you? Have you been saved? And and you may answer yes or no, or I don't know, but but regardless, we're talking about something that happened in the past, right? Has it happened or or not? And when we talk that way, generally we're talking about justification. Have you been declared righteous by God because you put your faith in him? That takes place at a point in time. But the Bible also talks about those who are being saved. This is the present tense. And It's not talking about people who have not yet been justified. It's talking about people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are being saved. And then the Bible also talks about those who will be saved. And again, it's not talking about people who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's talking about the church, about believers, saying, on that great and terrible day of God's judgment, you will be saved. So, past, present, and future tense, we have the Bible speaking of our salvation. When God regenerates us, which is to give us new life, and that is the the point at which we are justified, that those happen with each other, okay? He replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And that's what allows us to repent and believe. Immediately after that happens, what begins? Immediately after justification, regeneration and justification, what happens is sanctification begins. And that goes on through the rest of your life until the day that you die. It's never never fully completed in this life. But it's always, by God's grace, growing. We are making progress in our sanctification. Sanctified means set apart or holy. So, When you live a holy life, you're different. You're set apart from the watching world. You don't do the same things. If we were perfectly sanctified, that would mean we were perfectly holy, which would mean we no longer sinned at all. And there are groups of churches out there who believe that that happens, and their, their view of sanctification is very, very small because their view of holiness is very, very small. And so they talk about perfect sanctification or, or what are the terms that they use? Uh, perfection, Christian perfection and uh, um, 
and the um, the holiness movement is one of these uh, groups that believes in this, and uh, the others are escaping me at the moment. But my point is, if you have such a low, such a small view of holiness, and such a small view of sanctification that you think that you, you know people who are perfectly holy now and who no longer sin, you've you've got no understanding of sin either, right? And, and all it takes, if you want to prove to yourself, if you're really confused, okay, and you think maybe they are perfectly holy, just stomp on their toe. And you'll, you'll find out that they still sin. Well, you don't have to actually do that. You can just... Think about the last time somebody stomped on your toe and you'll... <laughs> we, we do not reach perfect sanctification in this life. But by God's grace, we see real sanctification. Real fighting against sin. And so... Sanctification can't happen unless regeneration and justification happen first. And regeneration and justification can't happen without leading directly into sanctification. And so this is the part that gets us confused, and this is the part that has had everybody up in arms and and yelling at, at John Piper. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people have been yelling at John Piper about saying, we must be sanctified. <clears throat> if you're not being sanctified, you're not a Christian, you're not saved, is what he's saying. And, and they say, so you're saying that works save us. Great, let's return to before the, before the Reformation. Good idea, John Piper, supposedly Reformed man. And, and John Piper goes, no, that's not what I said. Can, can, can we can we?" think a little bit more clearly and carefully about this. We should not be children in our thinking. We can and must distinguish between these steps. If you think about setting up a row of dominoes, you know, kids, you've done this before, you've got all the dominoes in a line, and you push over one on one side, and the one leads to the next, and that one knocks down, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, right? <clears throat> Each domino that falls over is its own step in this chain reaction, right? The first one falls over because of your finger. The second one falls over because of the first one, and so forth. The third one falls over because of the second one. We know that the fifth one can't fall over until the fourth one. Fourth one can't fall over until the third one, and so forth. Right? This is we understand dominoes, but I want you to see one leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. Well, we can use the idea of dominoes to see the errors that we fall into too often in thinking about salvation. And the first error is not starting with the first domino. We hear that number four has to fall, 
And so we go and stare at it, trying to figure out how to get it to fall both ways, thinking that it has to knock over both number three and number five. You can't get domino number four to fall to the right and to the left, right? So if you skip straight to number four and you knock it over, are you going to knock over all the dominoes? No, you're only going to knock over the ones either before or after it, right? This is the mistake of making our justification dependent on us being sanctified enough. Okay? We skip to this fourth step and we say, well, we know that we have to be sanctified if we're Christians, if we're going to heaven. Only those who are sanctified are going to heaven. And so... I guess that must justify us. But this isn't what the Bible says. Our justification is not dependent on our obedience. Justification comes first. And it's not dependent on our sanctification. The second error is thinking that we saw dominoes 1 and 2 fall down and therefore not worrying about whether numbers 3, 4, 5, and 6 fall down. Right? Have any of you ever set up a long domino chain and you, you start with number one like you're supposed to and you push it and it, it starts going. Chain reaction is going great. Click, 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 click. They're all falling down and then it stops. And half of, your, half of your line is still left standing. Have you guys ever done that? Maybe you guys are all better at setting up dominoes than me. I've done that lots of times. Oh, man, I thought I had 100 that were all going to go down. But only the first 10 went down, and then it, I turned the corner too sharp, and it missed. Right? Well, we do this with our salvation as well. We'll say, well, Johnny prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm so happy he's saved. Past tense, Right? Saved. If I didn't know about that prayer in second grade, I would surely think he was on the highway to hell, the way he's living his life. But I guess since he prayed that prayer in second grade, you know, he, and was baptized, he's, he's in, he's saved, he's good to go. But what is, what's missing? Domino four, five, six, seven, right? There's no sanctification in his life. On what basis do you believe that he is saved or is being saved or will be saved? Um, Because you think you saw dominoes one and two fall down? Right? Now, the domino metaphor falls down at some point. Because notice I said, think you saw dominoes one and two fall down. Our salvation, God begins and ends the process. And it's not like he... He forgets or messes up and he knocks dominoes one and two down and then accidentally misses domino three, okay? We do that with our domino setups, but God doesn't. But we often look at people's lives and we'll see, oh, I think I saw domino one and two fall down. And then we think we're, that everything's fine with that person because we know that once domino one and two fall down, that three, four, five are going to fall down. 
because God is the one who set up this domino puzzle. But God is the one who begins. God is the one who ends it. And just because you think you saw one and two, you know there's no evidence of three, four, five, and six. You're better off asking yourself, has one and two actually happened? You get what I'm saying? So, I know we haven't really gotten to our text yet. Guys got to understand these words, though. Sanctification is only possible if we have been regenerated and justified. If God had not given us new hearts and new life, we would have no ability to begin obeying him much less grow in our obedience, and that's sanctification, right? So verse 1, sin still easily entangles us. Sin still easily entangles us. Christians still have wicked desires, If we think that when we were given a new heart that somehow we won't have any more wicked desires, we've gotten things out of order. We're trying to skip dominoes and go straight to glorification. A new word. I know I haven't said that one yet, I don't think. Glorification, a new theological word, which is when we are completely perfect and united with God, but that's in heaven. That's in heaven. And so all of the utopias are an attempt to establish heaven on earth, right? Even the Christian utopia of thinking that somehow you can be done away, do away with all of your wicked desires, your own little one-person utopia. It's just as bound and destined to fail as every other utopian society that's existed. Heaven isn't on earth. We don't accidentally sin as Christians. Right? We sin because we want to. Only when we properly understand that there are still sinful desires within us can we hope to understand sanctification and its importance. Many people wrongly assume that Christians no longer have evil desires. And this is essentially the, the health and wealth gospel. Now, it may not make sense for you. You may not associate those two ideas closely, but think about it. It makes us think that we can have something fully right now that we can't fully have until heaven. In this case, sinlessness. In that case, the, the, uh, the blessing of God without trouble on earth. That's what the health and wealth gospel says. You can, you can have all the health and all the wealth, all the, the blessings of heaven, but now. And that's why it's so seductive, because who doesn't want heaven? I want heaven. And, and you look at the Bible, and it makes all these promises of, of 
You can, you will, you will have health. You will have wealth. You will be glorified. You will be sinless, right? And, and you read it and, and the health and wealth preacher says, this stuff, you ought to believe it. It's real. You can actually have this stuff here and now. And it's only when he says that that he's wrong. Right? It's only when he says that, here and now, that he gets it wrong. The most dangerous errors are always mostly true. This makes light of the sin within us. It doesn't help us in sanctification, our fight against sin. It makes us fall into one of two errors. Some, knowing that they are Christians, will assume that they must no longer have sinful desires, and so they cannot hear calls to repentance anymore. How many of you have ever known a Christian that thought this way? Well, they'll, they'll say, well, I couldn't struggle with that. I'm a Christian. I have been regenerated. I had a man say that to me here in town not, not all that long ago. I was pointing out a particular sin that I thought I saw in his life, and I may have been right or I may have been wrong about seeing that. But when he responded by saying, I've been regenerated, I couldn't possibly struggle with that anymore, I knew there was a major problem. Right? Whenever you think, I couldn't possibly struggle with that anymore, I've been regenerated, I've been justified, whatever it is, you know, you say, I couldn't possibly struggle with that. I couldn't possibly want that evil thing. You don't understand yourself. You don't understand sin. And you, that will prevent you from hearing any rebuke. That will prevent you from hearing any call to repentance, any receiving any discipline from God or from man. If you never seem to need to apologize to others, and you never seem to find serious sin in your life that scares you, then you don't understand your own sin, and you can't put it to death. You can't grow in sanctification. And if sanctification isn't happening, has justification happened? Remember, justification leads to sanctification. Paul ends this passage by saying, Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That is the command to us. It's not... Pursue the sanctification that will justify you. (laughs) Right? But it is, pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The other error that is caused by believing that Christians don't have wicked desires is this. Totally different error, just as big a problem. 
Some, being true Christians, will see and feel their wicked desires as plain as day. And they are as plain as day most of the time, right? And seeing our wickedness and and feeling those wicked desires, they then assume that therefore they must not really be a Christian. You understand why that would happen, right? If you think that Christians don't have wicked desires and you look in yourself and you see wicked desire, well, the only logical conclusion is I must not be a Christian. And if this is you, then the moment your sin is pointed out to you, you either get angry or fall into depression. Because you're unable to hear anything besides an accusation that you're not a Christian. The moment someone points sin out to you, they may as well be saying, you're not saved. But that's not what the Bible says. (laughs) Paul writes and writes and writes and writes to Christians about their sin. So don't get angry and don't get depressed, but begin to pursue sanctification. Seeing your sins means you're better prepared to fight them. Begin to throw them off. Unentangle yourself. Realize that Christians have sinful desires that need to be put to death and take heart. Because that's who the Bible is written to. Now, there's another error that isn't believing that Christians don't have sinful desires anymore. There's another error, and that is to think that it's impossible for you to obey. Well, you just got done, Pastor, saying that Christians will always still have sinful desires. So, I guess we just have to live in this misery of being... Sinful sinners sinning all the time, right? And I say, no, 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 that's not what I said. I said, you do and will sin, and you will and do have sinful desires. Yes, that's, that's true. But Christ did accomplish a major work in you when he changed out your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. When he regenerated you, he didn't leave you in exactly the same position. No, you won't obey perfectly, but you can and must obey. And that's God's command to us. So if you tend to give yourself a pass on your sin and just say, oh, well, I'm such a terrible sinner. My heart is desperately wicked. I have no ability to defeat this. There's two things in this passage that speak to you that you can't understand. The first is, lay aside. Lay aside. And the second is, well, what are we supposed to lay aside? 
the sin that so easily entangles us, right? The command is to lay it aside. And the second thing that doesn't make any sense to you is run with endurance. Lay aside the sin and run with endurance. These are things that we can do. And yeah, they're hard. And no, we aren't perfect. And no, we won't do it per- either of these things perfectly, but both of these point to the fact that we actually have been given the gift of sanctification. And we must not ignore it. If you have truly been reformed, then you aren't lounging around complacently in your sin, citing total depravity as your reason for failing to thrive spiritually. I, and I used the word reformed there in sort of a double meaning way, right? Reformed by God, but then there's reformed theology, and reformed theology is the one that talks about total depravity, and we're reformed, but then do we cite our total depravity as the reason why, oh, I guess, I, you know, I'm just so wicked, I'm just glad I've got a Savior who, who saved me. That is to make light of the work that Christ has done in you. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, 2-8 uh, says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Rejects what? The man who rejects what? The necessity of living a sanctified, holy, pure life. Hasn't rejected man, but has rejected God who gives his Holy Spirit. Jesus also makes this clear in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Rejecting sanctification is rejecting God and his salvation. And so I also exhort you here today, pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. But immediately the question becomes, how? Right? How? How do we run with endurance? Or how do we pursue putting off sin? How do we pursue sanctification? 
And verse 2 says, by fixing our eyes on Jesus. By fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because he is the one who started the work in us and gave us faith. And he is the one who is perfecting it. Remember I said our salvation is God working from beginning to end? Our hope, therefore, is in him from beginning to end also. Being sanctified is being made more holy. Which is to say that sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, the Holy One. And that's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because he is the Holy One, he's the one that you're trying to become like, right? So in soccer, when you're trying to kick a goal, there's this goalie, this keeper there between you and the goal, right? And you're trying to get the ball to go in the goal, And so you stare at the goalie, and you kick it right to the goalie. This is is what happens generally at the start when when you're first learning to play soccer, and even much of the time later on, right? You, You look at the goal, you look at the keeper, and instead of looking where you want the ball to go, you look at the enemy, and then that's where the ball goes, is to the enemy, Right? This is sort of like what happens if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus. If we don't fix our eyes on Jesus, if we fix our eyes on anything else, then we become like that. Another another way of thinking about this is your kids, they they look up to people, literally, because they're short, right? But when they look up at them, they look up to them. And when they look up to them, they become like them, right? And so there's a reason that we're warned, be not deceived, God is not mocked, bad company corrupts good morals, right? And so we, we, need, to, we need to recognize that when our children are looking up at us, they're looking up to us, they're going to become like us. And that's better than them looking up to and becoming like Tiger Woods. Right? I might not have said this five or six years ago, but you know, you, you look at the trajectory and it's not good. Hope I'm not offending anybody in here or not, but <laughs> it's obvious, right? The trajectory is, is obvious, it's bad, bad fruit, and so we don't want our kids to grow up and, and become like him. So where are their eyes fixed? Where are your kids' eyes fixed? And where are your eyes fixed? Who do you want to become like? Fix your eyes on that person. Pay attention to what they're doing. Imitate them. And of course, Jesus is the Holy One, the perfect one. Fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm not trying to say you shouldn't have role models. You should, okay? But the author and perfecter of our faith, what you look to your role models insofar as they look to Jesus. 
That's why they're to be role models, because they imitate Christ. This is what Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so our, our eyes are to be fixed on him. And what do we see when we look at Jesus? We see that he suffered through the cross. Death. Death on the cross, which is more pain than we will ever endure. And after that, that he received the reward. And I want a reward. Do you want a reward? We like rewards. We're made to like rewards. Christ received his reward. He endured to the end, and he received his reward after that. And he is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And what is his reward? Aside from that, which is a beautiful reward, his people. He has saved his people. That was his goal from the beginning in coming, that his people would be saved from their sins. That's why he did it. Why did he do it? For the joy set before him, it says. He loved God's law and he loved obeying it. And he loved what his obedience was accomplishing, our salvation. We often fail to pursue sanctification for fear of looking stupid to others. Now you say, how could pursuing sanctification look stupid to others? And I say, well it looks pretty dumb to cut off your right hand because it's causing you to stumble. Right? I mean, it sounds dumb. It looks dumb. When we, when we take an axe to our sin and start chopping, you'll look like a madman. You look dumb. Everyone thinks, well, what's got into him? How come he isn't like me and doesn't realize that that just doesn't matter? That that sin isn't worth fighting? That there's no hope anymore. All of the things that, all of the lies that Satan has convinced people of so that they won't pursue sanctification, you pop up in the cave, right? And you've got a flashlight and you're shining it around. And I mean, I'm, I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors here, but you guys know Plato's cave, right? Oh, you don't know Plato's cave. Forget the cave analogy. All right, so, so you show up. <clears throat> Where? What makes you look like a madman? You show up at the temple, and you've got a whip, and you clear, you're clearing out the money changers. You look like a bit of a wacko. Over the top, as it were. Taking things a little bit too seriously, if you know what I mean. And this is what pursuing sanctification looks like. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus. We want to be like him. And he was a bit of a madman. 
And so if we're going to be like him, we're going to look a bit stupid to other people. Don't be afraid of looking stupid. If, if, it's going to, if people are going to think you're weird because you don't go watch movies, all right, people are going to think you look weird. So what? You know what I'm saying? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Quit worrying about what other people think of you. We're ashamed of what we'll look like, but Jesus didn't care about being stripped naked and hung on the cross. He despised the shame. That's what our text says. He despised the shame. When you despise something, you, you just don't care. This is, this is what happens when <clears throat> a kid who really does care says he doesn't care. You know, He tries to show his despising. I got, I got candy after my game. I don't care. I despise candy. It's a lie, right? But Jesus truly didn't care. He despised the shame. He looked to the goal. And that's what we have to look to. To which we respond, but it's hard. Right? I mean, you say, I mean, I know, Joseph, you made it sound so good to obey. But I've been there before thinking, yeah, I want to obey. Yeah, I like the sound of this. This sounds good. And I know what what happens. I go out, and then it's just so hard. And the author of Hebrews responds to this objection in two ways. He first says, actually, you're not facing very much difficulty, at least not yet. Because you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your fight against sin. And so it is with us, of course. We have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in our fight against sin. And they were already undergoing serious persecution, the people that he's writing to. And we're not. He tells them, Jesus went through this exact same thing and much worse. Think about it so that you don't grow weary or lose heart. That's what he says to us. Dwell on Jesus. Look look to him so that you don't lose heart. Remember what he went through so that you don't lose heart. We aren't suffering what the Hebrews were suffering. And they weren't suffering what Jesus suffered. So don't grow weary and lose heart. Now, does that motivate you? It doesn't sound like the best motivational speaker content, does it? You just got done saying, it's going to be hard. And he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) So look at what's coming. Look what he went through and go for it. It's like, but what he went through was even worse. What he went through was even harder. 
It's not crazy. Paul explains to Timothy that this is exactly how he endures suffering. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so we look to the end result of our sanctification, just as Jesus did. And the end result is receiving the reward. And with Paul and with us, often that reward is seeing the salvation of God's people, producing fruit in keeping with repentance, not just in your own life, but in the lives of others. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, I know it's our tendency to complain at this point. I don't see why it has to be so hard. I don't understand why he doesn't just take away my desire for sin. Can't he just remove it from us? Why does it have to be so hard? Now, aside from the fact that you just sound like a grumpy three-year-old who just doesn't want to do what he's told when, you, when we do that, okay, which is enough of a reason not to do it on its own. That's also why the author of Hebrews begins to talk about discipline next. Because when a three- or four-year-old begins to be grumpy when he's told what to do, we discipline him. And when we respond to God with that kind of insolent complaining, he will discipline us. And he explains that we endure for discipline. And again, I know that sounds as crazy as crazy gets to, to the motivational speaker. It's for discipline that you endure. Wait a minute, I thought I was enduring for the reward. Well, discipline comes to those who are loved by God. And therefore, it is a reward. That does not sound nice. He goes, no, of course it doesn't. Discipline never sounds joyful. Although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so when you say, why doesn't God help me in this fight against sin? Why doesn't he help me be more sanctified? I say, here's the good news. He does. He disciplines you. You say, all the low-down, no-good solutions 
does it have to be discipline? Afterwards, discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what we want. He knows how to give us good gifts. He knows how to bring his salvation to completion in us. And he's promised to do it. And so he gives us discipline. You get to the end of our passage and he ends with this tender exhortation. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And how many of us have weak knees and are feeble-handed right now in our fight against sin? Strengthen them. Not just by yourself, but us, we, strengthen one another. Make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Uh, For a few years, I had problems with my ankles. And it was from playing soccer, and I just kept playing soccer. And you know what happened? It got worse. So I stopped playing soccer, made straight paths for my feet, and then with the doctor's help, my ankles were better. This is what we're to do. Make straight paths for your feet so you don't take the limb that's already lame and put it completely out of socket. But rather, it'll be healed. God knows that we're far from perfect. He knows the difficulties we face. He knows the temptations we've given into time and time again. And he calls us to the joyful outcome of obedience, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So don't give up, but do the work that's necessary to grow strong in Christ, to be sanctified. Or you won't see God. Let's pray.